The following programme is made possible by the friends and partners of Creation Today. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. So why do so many people miss it? How can astronomers, the, the scientists who, who study the stars, miss something that God has made to be so obvious? Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching. Your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. Well, as it turns out, this was a struggle that the great writer C.S. Lewis had as well. And my guest today has been a student of Lewis and can't help but see a beckoning in Lewis's writings back to the wonder of the heavens. He has not always been a believer in Christ. Don't ask him about this. He actually came to understand God's truths as an adult. He's a former middle school and high school teacher. He's an uh, army veteran, a published author, a radio personality. He's on staff as an apologist with our friends over at Watchman Fellowship. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Daniel Ray. Daniel, welcome to the Creation Today Show. Well, thank you for having me, Eric. It's so nice to uh, finally get to talk to you for a bit. I have been admiring your podcast, your creativity, your wisdom when it comes to apologetics for several <laughs> years. So it is a delight to finally have you on the show. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. I, I uh, Thanks for the kudos for the podcast. I think that's how uh, we got in touch. You had uh, talked to James about that. And James, you contacted him about a podcast. We've been doing it for about three years now. I was blown away. I, I, I sat there and listened to it, and I went, wow, the music, the introduction, the, the wording of your introduction, the conversations that you have. I mean, I sat and listened to this and went, this is a podcast everybody should be downloading and listening to. Where's the easiest way or what's the easiest name to look up for them to grab your podcast? So um, watchman.org, watchman, with an A, dot O-R-G. And right at the top of the website, right you, as you come in, is a link to our uh, podcast. And then on the side, uh, on the sidebar of our podcast, you'll see a little um, Good Heavens. That's our science and faith and astronomy podcast that we do as well. And that's on the sidebar. And if you're interested in more about what we talk about today, um, that's a really cool one. I've been doing that for five years uh, with my friend Wayne. Well, our, our audience is made up of um, quite the spectrum. I've got everybody from complete atheist ag uh, to agnostic to, well, claim to be atheist, even though we'd say agnostic. They're my friends. They know that. I believe that. Uh, all the way to believers who are searching, how do I learn more about God's Word? How do I strengthen my faith in what God is telling me to do? How do I understand God and God's world properly? So we've got people all along the spectrum, and I guess my thought for today, uh, as I listened to your podcast and then you sent me your, um, well, it was your thesis, right, that you wrote uh, for your, for your it was an MDiv, is that what that was for? It was a master's degree yeah. in cultural apologetics from Houston Baptist, which is now Houston Christian University. Well, your 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 thesis was on Narnia and the meaning in the cosmos, and looking at Lewis's writings and and going like like I'll admit, okay, I I watched the movie Chronicles of Narnia. That's about as deep <laughs> as I've gone. I mean, I've I've read lots of Lewis's stuff, but as far as those uh, fictional. Uh, 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 writings, I haven't dove deep down, and, and you've taken a serious deep dive, haven't you? Yeah, it's uh, Lewis is, um, 
I mean, it's an overused analogy, but it fits. Lewis's thinking and imagination is like an onion. He has many layers. I mean, he was a, a professor of literature at Cambridge and Ox Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, he loved the medieval cosmos, the medieval cosmology. He loved Greco-Roman mythology. He loved Norse mythology. Um, and in order to really understand what Lewis is doing in Narnia, uh, what I learned from through Michael Ward at HBU, uh, the, the man is a multifaceted, multi-layered, uh, interdisciplinary thinker. Um, and it's 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 a wonder that the secret that we're going to talk about today has has laid dormant for fifty years because wow, there's nobody. I mean, we're not a reading culture today. I wouldn't say that you know, as as the church, as as a culture in general, we're very video screen text social media and it's hard to kind of contemplate the kind of life that Lewis was a part of he saw, he saw himself as a dying tradition a part of a dying tradition uh, and but it, in order to understand Lewis bottom line Eric, you have to be a little bookish i mean that's but, just and i'm not you know i love to read and i've i've grown up in two worlds but before the internet and after the internet <laughs> uh bi and ai you know <laughs> and uh and and i love to read i love to read as a kid but in this internet age it's so hard to 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 continually train your mind not to be so fractured by social media. So you do you do really have to dive and peel um, with Lewis, and you need the time and space to contemplate it. But um, hopefully we'll get people interested in uh, today in, in, in doing that. Well, I can't wait to, to kind of be a student here and learn some of the secrets that you've discovered that, as you say, have laid dormant. I, I wrote in the description of the show, our culture has really lost the authentic joy as they grope in the dark for meaning and significance in the universe. And Mm -hmm. Most people have never seen the grandeur uh, that are of the treasures hidden in Lewis's writings. So, I would love to just jump in and say, let's let's start. I think of scripture. I think of the heavens declare the glory of God. I think of in your in your um, in your thesis, you wrote, you know, or you you quoted from scripture. But but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have heard. Their voices gone out into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the worlds, and. Right, and, right. And you contrast. This is what, sorry, I'll, one more little thought here of That's what you okay. wrote, and then I just want to kind of go, okay, teach. You contrast what modern cosmologists have done to the heavens, and they reduced it down to like um, uh, an, un, an unimagination. We've reduced it down to mathematics. Um, we, we, we've, we've reduced it. I, I, Remember some quotes that you said. Uh, th th they're much more than mathematics. Uh, they they believe that reducing nature to mathematics was 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 a bad thing to do. It was a as a terrible thing to take away our imagination of what the heavens are really doing. So jump in. Uh, let's 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 take the Neil deGrasse Tyson model of well, this one is a star made out of this element, and let's take the the Cosmos series by. Um, um, Going by Carl Sagan, uh, who really tried to reduce space in the cosmos to just this material world, and let's open that back up. Let's 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 jump in and 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 put God back on the throne of the Creator of heavens and earth, if you will. So my my master's thesis was called the Glory. And stop me at any time if you have any questions. I don't want to lecture. You want to dialogue, and if people have questions or if you want to jump in, please do. Um, I, I studied with Michael Ward, uh, uh, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar. He's a, uh, 
a uh, Blackfriars, uh, a member of the Blackfriars uh, Brethren. He has a, taken a vow of celibacy. He's a Catholic uh, uh, monk, priest, if you will. Um, but uh, he's a, a, uh, a professor at HBU, now HCU. He wrote Planet Narnia uh, over 10 years ago. I read this in 2012, and it just changed, uh, completely changed the direction of my life professionally and personally. And uh, so Michael was my thesis advisor, and he's probably the um, top-level C.S. Lewis scholar in the world right now. Um, and just uh, he's an encyclopedia of, of Lewis knowledge. So that's the, his book. I highly recommend to everybody, but it's going to take, you know, turning off the TV uh, to, <laughs> to get through it. Um, so, so he was my thesis advisor. Uh, I want to start with scripture as you did, Eric, and there's some creation scriptures that, that you're familiar with. Genesis, of course, uh, we'll, we'll focus on Psalm 19 today, Isaiah 6, 3, the, the angelic host, the whole earth is filled with God's glory as well as the heavens. So the heavens and the earth declare God's glory. And Revelation 5, 5 is, uh, describes the Lord as the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's very many relations in nature that God compares himself to what the kingdom of like, what God is like. Uh, and he uses things that he has created to to speak to us as well about who he is and what he's like. So uh, Psalm 19 um, is is a kind of poetic. There's there's a, a certain kind of structure in in Hebrew. And really briefly, uh, you know, when we write an essay, we go point one, point two, point three, conclusion. Well, the Hebrews, the Jews went point one, point two, point three, point three, point two, point one. So they, 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 it's it, the centerpiece. It's literally a centerpiece. And so you see this in Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens, A, thought A, are telling, thought B. The center point of the, this text is C, the glory of God. And so the second C, the glory of God, is reflected in the works of his hands. Burst. And so we go back out to B. The first B was the heavens are telling, but now we see that the works of his hands are also proclaiming. Um, and the works of his hands include the rakia, or the expanse, or sometimes sky. And uh, my least favorite translation of rakia is firmament. Thanks, Jerome. <laughs> um, the Latin Vulgate really didn't help anybody in terms of um, our imagination. They it put a solid dome over uh, the heavens that separated the waters from the waters. But there's nothing really solid that we... There's nothing in Scripture, I think, that would indicate that there is an actual solid dome out there. But that's how the Greeks, and that's how Jerome translated expanse or rakia because there's implications of it being hammered out like a sheet of metal or something. But anyway, right. that's an, another discussion. But these are all verses in creation. Genesis 15, 5, God takes Abram outside and says, count the stars if you're able, so shall your descendants be. And then Psalm 8, 3, David is looking at the, the moon and the stars which God has created, and he's contemplating his position in relation to looking at the stars. And then Psalm 33, 6, uh, that the Bible says that God created uh, the heavens by the breath of his mouth. And by the word of the Lord, the heavens were ordained. Psalm 111.2, great are the works of the Lord. They are established by all who delight in them. That verse, by the way, Psalm 111.2, is over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, put there by James Clerk Maxwell, the one who united electricity and magnetism, or discovered that electricity and magnetism were united. Isaiah 40.26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who calls them forth by name. He has numbered all of them, great is his might, and not one of them is missing. And then Daniel 12, 3 says that this is the metaphor that I like, that I think it makes, makes it personal for us, brings the heavens down to earth, that God says that many who bring, uh, those who bring many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And this thought is repeated on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you, you, Eric, you guys, you, the ones I created, you are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts, a, puts it under a basket, but it, is, it lights up the whole room so everybody can see. So Jesus is, is, is telling us that we are the light of the world and that uh, we should go and let our light so shine before men that they may see uh, our good works and glorify <laughs> our Father who is in heaven. So, so, so we're, we're created in the image of God. God creates stars, but then he likens us to stars. I mean, that's what we call actors today, right? They're stars. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, but that's what the Bible calls us, Eric. It's perfectly biblical because in Genesis 15, 5, God says to Abram specifically, your, your descendants will be just like that. And so if you get out into a, a cloudless, starry, dark sky away from light pollution and you look up at the skies, you can, you can imagine Jesus saying this to you, that Abram's descendants, which you are by faith in Christ, you're like, one of, you're like the stars. And so God creates this rakia, this expanse, and into the expanse on day four, what does he put into the expanse? The greater light, the lesser light. And as, as almost an aside, he created the stars also. Um, and where in scripture do we see him doing that? He did that again to give us an example. If you were a good thinking Jew on the, on the uh, shores of Sinai and God separated yeah. water from the water, he created an expanse between the water. And what did he put in them? Abram's descendants, right? Put the, the lights of the world in between the water. He's recreating what he did in creation by recreating Israel. So um, I want to preface all this by saying that, that Lewis believed, and, and rightly so, and I think very biblically, that the cosmos, everything that God has created, are magnificent symbols of divinity. That was Lewis's exact words for planets especially, that they are magnificent symbols of divinity. So we're talking about a, a poetry uh, a poema, as Lewis would call it, a work um, that God uses um, in speaking. So briefly, what is the glory of God? We're talking in the abstract here. Let's be more specific. Uh, some, some things we can say about the glory of God. One, it's very good, right? In Genesis, when he's done creating, what does he say? He's seen it all. It's very good. It's powerful. It's holy. It's love. It's light. It's true. It's pure and beautiful. And it's also deadly. You can't uh, go out into the universe without a spacesuit or a ship. You have to bring your little Earth suit with you. You have to be properly clothed. I talked to uh, Charlie Duke, who's an Apollo 16 astronaut, this summer. And Charlie and I spent a few minutes talking about being clothed in Christ's righteousness. And Charlie likened his spacesuit to being clothed in Christ. He could not, he and John Young, when they were walking on the moon in 1972, could not have enjoyed the lunar atmosphere without being properly clothed. And he made that analogy with being clothed in Christ. Um, so, you know, whether you're on the moon or earth, there's plenty of places where, where God is and is constantly reminding you of who he is. And remember Moses' request, God, let me see your glory. And, and the Lord says, well, no, you can't see my what? My face and live. So there's something very beautiful and wonderful and true and pure. But if sinful human beings look upon the, the unmitigated face of God, we would die. So God is constantly in the business of mediating between sinful man and himself. And so that's what creation is. That's what scripture is. It's a mediation between a holy God and sinful human beings. So when God speaks about creation in the Bible, or when God has created things, trees, animals, stars, whatever, um, all of these are, are kinds of poetic works of God's speech, uh, telling us constantly, day and night, uh, about what he is like. And um, so this is what this is this is the the core of where Lewis is going, that that nature should constantly remind us of the glory of God. One of my favorite lines in Narnia is um, 
when the children first discover Narnia and they, they, they encounter the talking beavers and they're asking about Aslan, you know, Aslan's on the move. And one of the kids finds out, you know, he's a lion. And uh, one of the <laughs> the kids said, is he safe? And one of the beavers says, well, he's not safe, but he's good. Wow. You know, which, which I think is one of the, the best theological statements I've ever read in Lewis is is exactly that, that uh, that God isn't safe. If it, I don't recommend Christianity if you want to remain safe, but it's good, right? And, so and that... help me real quick, because even if you, even as you contrasted the waters, God dividing the waters and sending the descendants of Abraham, which will be you know greater than the stars, you have a way and a love for literature, and my mind thinks very scientifically, very you know, it, it, it is. Is humanity, um, are we broken so much that it's hard? Like some people get this, some people get that, when really it's these two worlds need to come together. These two worlds of the metaphor and the absolute, the abstract and the the solid. They, like I need to be able to bring these together because I think what, I mean, these are beautiful things. Like that, I, I when I read that or when I, when I watched the movie a couple weeks ago, I heard that line, but I didn't think about the metaphor that it was making, it wasn't connecting to me the same way. Mm. Well, I think, Eric, that yes, we have what would they call the noetic effects, the noetic effects of sin, that, that sin has infected all of us, affected all of us, including our thinking. And so to various in stages, if we all examined, came over and, and, and got videotaped for a while and we didn't know it, you know, we'd see parts of our private lives that need a lot of work. Um, you know, I always, when I taught middle school, I always tell my kids, I said, Hey, would you go to a sporting event? If you knew the jumbotron was going to randomly flash your secret thoughts, <laughs> you wow. know, nobody, nobody's going to do that. But, but that's because our minds are, are, are hounded by flesh and sin and Satan. And, you know, it, it's, it's an attic of despair. Sometimes if we let, that's why the Bible says in Romans 12, one and two, to, to renew your mind, which is means to repent, you know, to, to clear your mind, to focus your mind on, on what is true. Uh, not just avoid negative things, but to focus your mind on what is true and what is good. So Lewis was taking this idea of of wanting to 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 not just criticize modern cosmology and astronomy. He wanted to give people something to think about. So it's one thing, and we know this in the Christian life. It's one thing to focus. I can't. I shouldn't. We get so laser focused on what we shouldn't do, right? And we forget the goodness. The whole purpose of it is to embrace what is good. And uh, so, so that's what we have to do. And I think in answer to your question, yes, this fragmentation that has happened in our minds, it's, it's a human, it's part of sin that we, we silo, we fragment, uh, we isolate. And what Lewis is doing that's so foreign to our culture today was integrating um, and, and, and seeing the synthesis of how all things hold together in Christ, First Corinthians, or, uh, Colossians. Um, Paul in, in Acts 17, uh, in him we live and move and have our being. He sustains the universe by the word of his power in Hebrews uh, 1.3. So Lewis was looking for a more integrated view of creation, um, and he saw it as, as, as part of what Tolkien called uh, being a sub-creator. So as a, as a writer, um, as a painter, as an artist, as a musician, whatever you're doing, you are creating because you are created in the image of God, and God is all about creating and recreating. Wow. So, so as as image bearers of God, um, it, it takes time to cultivate this within ourselves. Sometimes we just have to turn off our screens and phones. But, but again, like I said at the beginning, that we we need to be more bookish uh, in order to understand the word. We are word people, right? Uh, God is the word of God, the logos. 
And uh, our culture now is swimming against that because I think everybody would concede that we are an image-based culture and not a word-centered culture. And I mean by that, not only are we not God-centered, but we're not uh, literarily centered. So it's, it's, it's key, Eric, and I think a lot of what you and, and many people miss, and myself included, of course, um, is that the image culture directly swims in opposition to a, a word a word-based culture where you take time to to contemplate and to think. And it's hard in the internet. I mean, I, I love to read, but I find the distraction of social media and cell phones and everything so counterproductive to to the desires that I have of reading. Thankfully, I have a job that forces me to read. Yeah, I have, same I here, have read. same here. Like, I have to read. <laughs> so uh, if I didn't have that, you know, I think I'd be suffering right along with everybody else. And um, with my master's degree, I had the space and the time to read. Um, and that's what it requires to understand not only Lewis, of course, but but of, of Jesus, of, of our God, yeah, who is a well, word-centered God. And the more you read, Eric, and the more widely you read, the more interconnected you see things. And that's that's kind of how I got into Narnia. I was looking to help my middle school students understand C.S. Lewis, and I found Planet Narnia, and then I'm, I, you know, I was like, I was kindred spirits with Lewis's thinking. Not to the depth of it, but the understanding of how to integrate things. And uh, so that's what that's what we have to strive to is to understand how things are integrated and hold together in Christ. That's really cool. I just always thought it was kind of like you're talking in code. You know, Jesus gave parables. You talk in code. Don't say what you want to say. Say it like this, like a woman. Uh-huh. You know, just say don't <laughs> don't tell me what you're really thinking. Just you know, I'm joking about that. Well, but, that but, is that's funny though because I mean it's true in a sense because there is a kind of uh, the nature in which uh, you know if you're I'm not married so I don't know this but I've heard it enough. That, that husband and wife speak two different kinds of languages, but I right. think that that is part of, of what God is like, that there is a different kind of language than this male pragmatism that we all struggle with, which I think is pure poison for us in terms of developing a, a thought life. And, you know, we have our spouses to remind us that that when she, she doesn't have to say anything and she can look at you or she can say two words and you know those two words mean a lot more. Here's what than, it really means, yeah. yeah. Than what it really means. And, and that's creation, Eric. That's... Lewis's view of literature, that the words on the page are drawing you to something far greater than the words themselves. So and men, don't don't reject that in your wife. Absolutely not. Embrace that. I, I right. my wife my wife has never done that. So um, well, that's awesome. I joke. That's fantastic. <laughs> I just well, you know, in terms of words drawing beyond, that's a great analogy, Eric. That uh, you know, your spouse when they she says something that the, it's more than the words. There's something behind that, and that's Lewis's whole idea with the universe. It's not just stuff. And he's not, you said something about about mathematics. It's not that mathematics is bad per se. It's what happened, we got addicted to math, and to put it very mild, very simply, that once, around the 1600s, when the 1600s started, Johannes Kepler, Tycho Brahe, uh, Galileo, Isaac Newton, um, they, they just, they discovered things. They discovered the mathematics that was the language of mathematics. But then as a culture, when you started explaining things mathematically, then it, it started eviscerating the personality of the cosmos. And everything became purely described in mathematical terms. And then it was the French mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace, uh, who had this mathematical structure of a, of a cosmology in the late 1800s. And Napoleon asked him, said, what about God? And I have no need of that hypothesis. Because he could do math, and he thought, if I have the math, and I can predict where everything's going to be and how everything's going to work out, I don't need God. And that's what the mathematics did. Men became addicted yeah. to mathematics. It's not the 
the cookie or the the donut that that's really the problem. It's the the human heart that wants more cookies and donuts, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's it's not the thing. It's not the knife that kills people. It's the human heart. It's not it's not the paganistic culture so much as it is what our human hearts do with these things. We are idol factories. And so Lewis was trying to brush aside all the idolatry and and reimagine ah. a lot of what he loved in terms of uh, maybe cultivating a story about Christ. In, and, your, uh, in your thesis, by the way, just to, to hit that home, we see scientists doing this. In, in your thesis, you said Francis Crick, uh, the co-discoverer of the DNA, said, hey, you're you, your joys and your sorrows, you know, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and your free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. And I thought mm -hmm. that's what happens when you reduce it down to the simplistic and you, you don't allow the collective, the whole, the story to come together. Correct, correct. Uh, Crick, that's an excellent quote of modern scientific reductionism, that, that, that this is exactly what Lewis predicted. This is exactly what he was wrestling with as a professional scholar, and that's he knew in the culture what was coming, how it was developing, that everything was being reduced to its constituents, to, to its atomic constituency. Uh, the, the only thing that, that mattered or the only thing that, that anything meant was what it's made of, and the more modern science probed, it just kept probing and probing and probing and probing, and pretty soon there's nothing there. It, we've probed down to to the minuscule level, and we think you know, we build these big hadron collider things, yes. looking for particles, and then the particles get smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, what does this all mean? Why are you building big machines and smashing particles together? Because they think somehow in the particle they're going to find a deeper meaning, and and they're. It's like the Indiana Jones movie where uh, the Nazis, you know, he had his little thing burned into his hand. Yeah. He only had one side of it, right? And so so Indiana Jones, he's like, they're digging in the wrong place because he only had one part of the map. And so I think a lot of the physical sciences today, Eric, are digging in the wrong place for the wrong thing, and they're not going to find anything. Um, well, it, and, and so this here, I wanted to show you this, this definition of what yeah. we've been speaking about, what I call interlacing. Um, this is something that Lewis admired in the poet Edmund Spencer, who was uh, 16th century, which was 1500s. Uh, Fairy Queen is a fantastic old English poem, uh, a, a fantasy story. But um, interlacing is where you take several different simultaneous threads and weave them together. Okay, basic bottom line is all you really need to know. Now, it's hard for us to, we always like to say, well, how are things connected? Like, Kids go to school, right? They go to college and there's the science building and there's the drama department and there's the art department and there's the philosophy and the language departments. They never talk to each other. And so what do I got to learn this for? You know, as a teacher, I hear that all the time. Why yes. do I got to do, do this? Because the kids absolutely see no interconnectivity to this, this educational pragmatism that we've dumped on them. Well, you just have to go to school to get a job. Why? So you can earn a living. Why? You know, and and they catch on to the the futility of this. Is that all there is to life? I'm just getting this for to spin my practical wheels. What is? How does all this fit? That's why Carl Sagan was such a genius. That's why he got away with what he did, because he was an integrator. He interlaced things, and people loved it because number one, it didn't mention God, and number two, it it seemed to provide some kind of paganistic meaning to the cosmos. And Sagan is basically, I would say the. The, the, the pastor of modernity, really. Yeah. He's he's the spiritual guru, if there is such a thing, in the physical sciences. Everybody appeals to him like a church father. And uh, this is what Lewis said of Spencer. 
that people accused him that Spencer brought together Protestant theology, uh, the idea of uh, medieval chivalry, Platonic ideas, poet ideas from Ovid and Lucretian, and pastoral scenic kind of things. And he wove them all together in Fairy Queen, and that's why Lewis loved Fairy Queen. And I say all this to say that, that Lewis was trying to emulate Spencer when he created Narnia, weaving together things in a narrative. And his, his best friend at the time, Tolkien, when Tolkien was reading the first drafts of Narnia, Tolkien said, uh, this won't do, this is mishmash. Uh, Jack just, Jack was his nickname. Jack just seems to be dumping stuff together, like, you know, extra stuff you find in your fridge, like, ooh, some salad dressing, some leftover tuna, some mustard, we'll just <laughs> stir it all together. And that's what Tolkien thought Lewis was doing with Narnia. But Lewis never told anybody, not his best friend, not his stepsons, nobody, uh, what Michael Ward discovered uh, 10 years ago in Narnia. And and that's another side of Jack, uh, CS, that uh, he, he was very secretive about a lot of this. And so... Yeah. It seems to be that Michael's argument is that he he meant this to be so people would discover it, and it was made to be discovered the the secrets in Narnia. Well, so, I want to uh, I want to get into the more of the secrets of Narnia uh, because that's what this show is all about, and you have done a lot of research to uncover that. Here's my problem, Daniel. I got all that social media go right now. Uh, <laughs> Guys, I am so sorry. I, I like literally, this is not a sales pitch or anything. I'm sorry. I want you to get more of the real meaning out of what Narnia was saying and what C.S. Lewis was doing. Uh, but Daniel, our podcast listeners, our television show, and uh, the the people joining us on Facebook and YouTube, I'm going to have to let them go. Guys, feel free to come on over to creationtoday.org partner with us. You get to partner with us for whatever you want, any any amount you want. And your partnership, by the way, is what is what helps us get things out on social media and take things, uh, truths of God's word and God's world out to people to, to really help shape their lives, to, to, to have a ripple effect that goes into eternity. Uh, just in the month of December, we, we did the stats. Uh, we, 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 were, we were blessed by God to have reached literally millions of people in December. Uh, just through social media. And so our partners are part of what help us do that and help us reach out to a world that needs it. So if you want to kind of keep digging in with us and you also get access to all our past shows and all our future shows, come on over to creationtoday.org and partner with us. Uh, Daniel, can you give them, give them, give them like the 30, you don't have a 30 second view of this. Uh, give, give them the 30 second view of some of what they need to understand or, or, or just a, a little hint uh, and then tell them where they can find more uh, at, at watchmen.org. Uh, renew your mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Yes. Get back to reading. And that's part of what it means to renew, is to revisit and reread and be recreated and renewed in the image of God. And the more you read, the more you will see the interconnected thing, interconnectedness of things, not only in heaven, but on earth as well. That. You did it. That was a great summary. And let's unpackage <laughs> that here in this next uh, in this next little while. And then uh, if you guys have questions, I see uh, William, you had a question. We'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, thank you guys for joining me. Next week, I'm looking forward to a, a great conversation with David Reeves, a friend of mine who is uh, up in uh, the Nashville, not quite well, around Nashville. He's actually got a place just outside of Nashville now. And he, he's got a new book, uh, and it's all about the science behind the Bible. The Bible claims scientific things years before science discovered it. We're going to go into many of those, as many as we possibly can, at least five, and talk about how the Bible is actually backed up by science. In a world that says we need to be scientific, the Bible is outdated, turns out the Bible preceded science big time. So we'll talk about that. 
Look forward to seeing you guys next week.